From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. We're all learning as we go. And the teams that win are the teams that learn the fastest. And so I think if you can set that tone, that's a really important foundation that none of us have the answers. Encouraging people to take risks and then making sure you have a culture where failure is never fatal. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as people are giving it their best, communicating well, asking for help, failure can't be fatal. Hi everyone, Justin Schreiber here. Today I'm joined by Erica Schultz, President of Field Operations at Confluent. By any standard, Erica has ascended through the ranks of sales with impressive speed. She set that pace only a few years into her first job at Oracle when she found herself in Argentina leading the inside sales team. Since then, she's successfully delivered on challenging assignments, including running Oracle's software as a service CRM business and building the enterprise sales team at New Relic. Erica's highly structured approach to sales, coupled with her penchant to dive headfirst into situations which, in her words, don't have a well-defined playbook, are core ingredients in her recipe for success. During our discussion, we'll talk about how Erica developed the confidence to embrace uncertainty, her perspective on selling open source technology, and her advice for sales executives looking to break into the C-suite. Erica, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Justin. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Erica, we have a lot to cover today. You've had such a fascinating career. I wanted, though, to start perhaps not quite at the beginning, but at least come in during your college days. I know that for you, college was a formative time, and I'm interested to find out how college changed you and specifically how college helped you to develop the grit that has made you so successful in your career? Well, you're exactly right. I had an interesting start to college life. So coming into college, um, I you know, graduated high school. I was valedictorian in my class and captain of the swim team. And if you'd asked me what my self-identity was, I was a great student and a great athlete. I go off to Dartmouth College from California off to New Hampshire. And my first exam in college, I failed. I got a 32 out of 100. I mean, like a complete face plant. Letter home to my parents. It was awful. I'd never failed anything in my life. So I completely failed that. And I had walked onto the swim team. And about 90 days into college, my freshman fall, I got cut from the swim team. I had about a 30-second conversation with the coach. She said, you're not fast enough. We don't have room for you on the team. I'm cutting you. So the two things I knew about myself coming into college, that I was a great student and a great athlete, had just been shattered. And my self-identity was kind of rocked. In fact, you know, I, I actually called UC San Diego um, late my freshman fall. And I said, will you still take me? I think I've made a terrible mistake because I didn't think I could hack it at Dartmouth. I thought I'd gotten in over my head. How did you move from that failure to the point where you were able to find confidence and were even more importantly, find a new sense of self-identity? Yeah, you know, it was it was a moment. And of course, at the time, it was like, and I appreciate these are not like life-threatening challenges, but to my 17-year-old self, this was a really big deal. You know, my self-identity was pretty rocked. Um, but, you know, over time now looking back, I realized what a gift 
to have been challenged in that way at that point in my life. Because what it forced me to do was to pick myself up and find my grit and find my resilience. And um, so I, you know, reapplied myself in school. I found, um, you know, the major that I loved and studied hard and brought my GPA way up from that 2.8 that I started with my freshman fall. And while I didn't go back to swimming, I realized that I wasn't ready to give up on myself as an athlete. So I walked onto the rowing team, to the women's crew team, my sophomore fall, and I rowed crew for three years and ended up being the captain of the team uh, by my senior year. And so I really found grit that I didn't know I had because I think I'd always relied on what I believed was natural talent before. And I really came to learn the power of hard work and uh, the power of grit and resilience. And those lessons have, have carried with me and been so relevant in my career and other aspects of my life. So when I look back at what seemed devastating at the time, now I look back with gratitude. It was such a gift. Well, you traded in all of these accomplishments for some that I think in the long run was even more valuable, the confidence that you could reinvent yourself and an identity that was rooted in your ability to fail, stand up, try again. And obviously, long term, there's so much more benefit to being able to root yourself in that kind of an attitude. A hundred percent, you know, and it taught me that it, it did build confidence in my ability to learn. And, you know, I carried that into the next um, adventure, which was studying abroad, which was kind of intimidating, you know, and, and living in a country where English wasn't the native language. But, you know, it's a muscle that you build, this ability to learn. And then you find yourself with confidence that when you put yourself in these situations that stretch you and that are really new and challenge you, your confidence comes from the knowledge that you can learn if you apply yourself. So, uh, yeah, in many ways, it was a great experience. I'm glad you brought up studying abroad. I had the opportunity to live in Chile for a few years myself. And many of the things that you're describing when you started off at Dartmouth, I relate to, but I was then in Chile at the time. I had an identity that I'd formed. It was based on the jokes I could tell. It was based on the way that I could say things. As soon as I got to Chile, though, that was all taken away from me. And for a while, I felt like I was stripped of the person that I thought I was and, and what I could offer. But ultimately, that allowed me to reinvent myself, dig deep and find out who I really was and what the real value that I brought to the table was. That's right. And those situations develop empathy. Now you have empathy, better empathy, more empathy for people for whom maybe English isn't the first language, but are working with you in an English dominant environment. And so I think, you know, those experiences are so valuable. I had similar experience studying abroad in Mexico and then living abroad with Oracle in Argentina for several years. Um, it was similarly challenging, as you describe. I had a hard time figuring out how to show up as myself, um, with, stripped of those capabilities of, you know, having a sense of humor or lowing, knowing the local, um, the local slang. So it can be tough, but a good learning experience. So athletics has obviously been a really important part of your life in high school, in college. You've had the opportunity to wear the hat, though, of athlete as well as coach. What lessons did you learn in each of those roles that you've pulled through into your professional experiences? First off, being an athlete and a coach has very much shaped why I love my job, uh, why I was drawn to it, how I go about my, my role as a leader of a high-performance organization. Um, so I'm grateful for that background. As an athlete, I learned a couple of things. One is, um, you know, first and foremost, around setting goals, putting in the work. I often say that 
um, building greatness starts with just showing up every day and putting in the work. It was, you know, getting in the water every morning at 5.30 or 6 in the morning when you don't, you don't really want to every morning. And you got to show up and make the most of, put in the yardage and make the most of every practice. Be coachable. I think that is so important. I, I just, I developed that muscle of like, after every race, the first thing I would do, I'd walk over to my coach and I'd say, how'd I do and what can I do better? And I think that's a really important mindset. Um, all of us being learners and being coachable. So that was a valuable lesson. Um, and also learning to lose. Um, and that was different from learning to fail, as I talked about in college. That was massive failure, and, and that was a different scale. But just learning to lose and knowing that that's part of competing. Um, and then that fuels you to work harder towards the win. All of those were valuable lessons. I was an athlete in high school as well. I was not a swimmer. I always remember, though, seeing the swimmers heading to the second practice of the day because they'd already done the first practice at 5 or 5.30 in the morning. They were going to the second practice of the day. And then when you would talk to them, what would get them excited is shaving like a hundredth of a second off of their time. That's the way that they were thinking. And they literally were working hour upon hour upon hour just to get that hundredth of a second off. That's right. I know. Always chasing a number. But no, and you appreciate that it's it's a game of inches or in the case of swimming, it's, you know, it's a game of of uh, milliseconds and putting in the work. That's the differentiation, you know, that differentiation of hundredths or tenths of a second is what it takes. Those two a days, right? Those are those are the days when like I walked around with wet hair all the time. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I still crazily love the smell of chlorine. I know that's weird, but I do. It takes me back. <laughs> so you transitioned then from athlete and we're actually coaching for a while. What, what did you learn from your experience in coaching? I would say, I mean, I loved it even more than being an athlete, like that ability to unlock someone else's potential is really powerful and really inspiring. And to the opportunity to be a part of that and try and tap into, you know, what skills can I give them um, and how can I help their mental game to unlock um, their own full potential? And then when they realize that, of course, there's nothing more gratifying. So I love that. And I think that's one of the reasons that. I got into management and sales leadership early in my career at Oracle is I just, I, the, the idea of taking it at the time it was a young team. I was down in Argentina. That was my first management job. I led an SDR team having started at Oracle as an SDR myself. And so this notion of taking this young team that had never really played this role before, but helping them achieve success and contribute to the company's success. It was really gratifying. So you're today the president of Confluent, but you did start off as an SDR at Oracle. I did. Oh, yeah. I started out as an SDR at Oracle. Yep. I had to be in the office at 630 in the morning, log into my phone, make the number of calls. Um, oh, yeah. Start it. We all start somewhere, right? What did you learn as an SDR? And today, what lessons do you draw from those experiences so many years ago? <laughs> well, first off, we had a lot of fun as SDRs. Uh, it was a great place to start at Oracle in the 90s. Um but there were a couple of things in addition to just the, the same theme of putting in the work, making the calls like it's a volume game. It's a it's a game of activity levels. And so that's definitely something that I've carried with me. Why it's such a great place to start your career is you get to have so many different customer conversations throughout the day and throughout the week. And there's no better way to learn. So you can try stuff and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But you get all of these at bats. Um, that, and so you can really hone your pitch 
and you get really used to rejection, right? So it just, you know, it, it gets, it becomes something that you're kind of used to. So it was a fabulous place to learn. It was also a great just learning culture. You know, your manager would sit with you um, or you'd sit with a colleague. We had a lot of fun with that. And you'd kind of, um, you know, quiz each other and uh, role model for each other. But it was just a great learning environment. I heard some great advice once from a very successful sales executive. They said they were an SDR as well. And they said, at first, that rejection was really hard for me. And so what I did is I turned it on its head and I decided that I needed to have so many rejections every day before I could get to the actual opportunity. So I would actually start to tally how many rejections I had. And I started to realize every rejection got me closer to that goal that I was trying to pursue. And he said that muscle, developing that muscle became invaluable to me later in life. The rejections only get bigger. They only get more frequent. But once you get comfortable with them, it just becomes a means to an end. I love it. That's such a great mindset to develop. We talk about that a lot now as we're, you know, I'm in the middle of a quarter close. And as you close the quarter and you get that inevitable customer no uh, at some point in the closing process, you know, you got to teach the team. Fantastic. That's great to get the no. It means you're one step closer to yes, right? You know exactly what you have to work through. So I think shifting to that mindset can be really powerful. And also just recognizing that no is an inevitability. Most of the deals, the, the big, the successful deals that I've been involved in have at least three, four, five people telling you no. And the thing that distinguishes the great salespeople from the salespeople that aren't that great the salespeople that aren't that great take the first no and say thanks, and then they move on. And the the next ones say, okay, that's the first no. I'm going to get ready for the second no and, and the third no. So you talked a little bit about um, going down to Argentina as well. Was that was that a scary proposition for you? It it was. I mean, my parents thought I was nuts. I, I went down sight unseen. I was two years into Oracle. Um, I really had the bug to work abroad. Um, I I was, you know, almost fluent in Spanish. I really wanted to get there. And I just wanted that life experience and professional experience. So I was definitely out of my comfort zone moving down to Argentina at age 24. But again, what a fabulous experience. I learned so much and had a lot of fun. All of us, I think at some point in our lives are going to be in a maybe not in a foreign country, speaking a foreign language, but in a place where we feel like we're completely out of our depth. What are the pieces of advice that you would give to someone or the approach that you take when you find yourself in that situation to get your head back above water and ultimately to, th to thrive? Yeah, it's a great question because I actually, I do think it's a muscle that we can all build in learning how to survive and then thrive um, when we push ourselves out of our comfort zones. One of the things that I had to learn and the experience early in college that I shared um, helped me learn this was I had to learn how to ask for help. That wasn't something that I was good at until that moment. And learning how to ask for help and how to be resourceful, not viewing asking for help as a weakness, but actually as a strength, it's a capability. And it's what the great leaders do. It's what the great athletes do. That I think is number one. And so thinking about when you're in a new situation, maybe you're starting out in a new job um, or you're living in a new place, how can you surround yourself with resources and advisors and people that you can go to? I think that's really number one. It reminds me of... Uh... It was actually a photo I recently saw Steph Curry and Steve Kerr sitting right next to each other. They were looking at game film together and you could just tell by the look on Steph's face. He was devouring the game film. You think about someone that's the top of their game, perhaps one of the greatest that's ever played, but 
a great example of someone who who thrives on getting help, asking for help, getting feedback, getting input. And you're right. That's what that's what makes people great. A hundred percent. You look at the best athletes in the world and Steph Curry is a great example. They never stop asking for coaching. They never stop, you know, evolving their game. And um, Serena Williams is someone that I admire deeply. She just continues to evolve as an athlete and in so many other endeavors in her life. And I think that's a great reminder, lest any of us feel like it's a weakness that we ask for help or, or assert that we want to get better and we want coaching along that path. The best do it. So you're down in Argentina. You're trying to learn how to speak Spanish. You're trying to run a team. Was it difficult to be doing business in a language that was not your native tongue? Oh my God. Yeah. I, it was, it was really challenging. And again, like I thought I was almost fluent in Spanish and then, you know, you, uh, and it's different. Like when you raise your hand in class to say something than when you actually have to lead a team or live your life in a foreign language. And I had so many gaffes. I mean, I'll never forget like coming in one Monday morning and, you know, I'm trying to build rapport with the team and trying to build a, a team spirit. And um, I said, actually, I emailed this to everyone. I said, I hope you had a great weekend. I hope you all really enjoyed yourselves this weekend. And now I had learned Spanish, um, you know, uh, different countries have different dialects and even use different verbs and such. And I had studied abroad in Mexico. Well, turns out a lot of the vocabulary in Argentina is really different. So the verb I chose for, I hope you enjoyed yourself this weekend, turns out in Argentina has a totally sexual connotation. So I basically said to my whole team, I hope you all had a really exciting weekend. And they, of course, this young team just giggled to no end. So, you know, you get used to, of course, I was horrified, but then over time you get used to, to making gaffes and it is what it is. But yeah, I, they had a, they had a fun time with it. I'm sure though that people recognize you were making yourself vulnerable. You were going out on a limb and people gave you the benefit of the doubt, which I think is so much about leadership is just showing up and, and being real and taking risks. Yeah. And at the time I was still learning how to do that. You know, I was a first time manager and so I didn't like making mistakes. I was uncomfortable, but you're exactly right. You know, as, as we all evolve as leaders, it's so important just to authenticity matters so much. And so the, the more that we can all get comfortable showing up as our authentic selves. And I actually think in this moment in COVID and all of us working from home, surrounded by a number of different challenges, it's actually, I think, helped a lot of us be even more authentic. And, and in turn, you know, people respect that more. But I think authenticity as a leader is so demanded these days. But again, it can be a muscle that some have to build. While you were at Oracle, you had the opportunity to work with Hillary Coplin McAdams. I know she's She's a phenomenal woman. She's actually been on the podcast as well. But the two of you developed a close relationship and she became an important mentor of yours. Can you share a little bit about how she helped you and, and helped to evolve your perspective on the importance of allyship and mentorship? Yeah, 100%. And Hillary's such a dear friend and an important mentor for me. And I'll share with you the way that our relationship started. When I was in Latin America and I'd progressed from that early management job to leading the telesales function, building and leading the telesales function for the whole region. And I found myself very early in my career managing about 100 people from 10 different countries 
carrying a big number for Oracle. And I called her for help. She was a more senior leader at the company at the time. And I basically called and had one of those like, will you be my mentor conversations? But I asked her if she'd meet with me once a quarter and give me advice and review my plans. And it was really valuable. So then a couple of years later, I ended up working for her and uh, was her right-hand person as we were building uh, what at the time was Oracle Direct in North America and building the uh, inside sales group to great scale. And um, so she was a very important mentor for me as I grew in my career. And she did teach me a lot about allyship and mentorship and the difference between um, really sponsoring um, it, it being a sponsor and being a mentor. And I would say the difference being that being a sponsor is speaking up for talent on your team or underrepresented or unknown talent in different parts of the company when you're in a position of power and therefore you have the opportunity to do so, to speak up for folks on their behalf. That's different from mentorship, maybe you know behind closed doors, offering someone a little bit of advice. And so I've carried that with me. It's um, I think as, as leaders in positions of power, it's really important that we do both, but it's really important that we know the difference. And sponsorship is really powerful and game-changing. I think that's an important distinction to keep in mind. Another facet that's impressed me about mentorship and, and the relationships that form, there needs to be an affinity between the two individuals. As I've talked to Hillary, one of the things that is really important to her is this notion to challenge the status quo, to reinvent things, to build new approaches in new ways. She really thrives in that environment. You strike me as the same kind of person, and I can see how the two of you sitting across the table from each other would have some phenomenal conversations because you, you come at the world from a very similar mindset. Yeah. And in fact, we still do. You know, we keep in touch. We're good friends. And when we get to talking shop, we love trading ideas. Maybe you thought about this. And do you know anyone who's trying to do this thing different? Um, and we love trading those ideas. So, and, but I think that's what it's all about in our industry right now, too, is we all have to be learners and surround ourselves with people that we can get great advice from. So towards the end of your career at Oracle, a lot of things were coming together. You had the athlete and the coach, the competitive spirit, you really started to form your philosophy from a sales perspective, held various sales leadership roles at Oracle. At one point after that, you were actually tapped to come over to New Relic and do some interesting things at New Relic. Tell me a little bit about what the job was that you were hired to do, and then we'll get into how you actually did that. Yeah. So when I joined New, New Relic, it was um, April of 2014. The company was still private. The customer base, the install base was predominantly SMB and the acquisition, customer acquisition journey was mostly a customer self-service, bottoms up, developer-led kind of acquisition. So what I was brought in to do, we had our eyes on an IPO. We ended up going public later that year in 2014, but we had not yet really cracked the enterprise market. And the story that we wanted to be able to tell the street as we embarked on an IPO was that we were viable in the enterprise and we could get to that TAM as well. So my role, I came in as head of enterprise sales and I had to build from scratch really an approach to the enterprise market and start to shift our customer base um, to not be SMB only, but get a healthy percentage from the enterprise, which we did over the course of five years. This is a great situation to focus on. A lot of sales leaders will be brought in and literally from the ground up will have to build a sales organization. I'd love to have you take us through your playbook for building a sales organization. Oh, I charge for that, Justin. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, 
you know, there's there's a number of elements. I think one of the most important things, like one of the most foundational things, like what are you building for when you're building a sales organization for scale? Well, ultimately, you want to get to um, a repeatable selling motion, predictability in how you execute and how you deliver results. And so what are the foundations of that? Well, first, you really have to understand the customer journey so that you can architect a selling motion around that and then architect what I love to refer to as prescriptive sales plays and programmatic go-to-market plays so that you can arm your sales force and your marketing team with a really prescriptive way to go to market. Prescriptive messaging, clarity on who are the buyer personas that influence your decision, um, a prescriptive sales execution plan. Um, but those are that's really job number one. So for example, when I came into New Relic, that was something we had to study and get aligned on was, well, what is the customer journey? Who are the personas other than the developer? In addition to the developer, the developer was always king and always kind of paramount. Um, but who else mattered in that buying decision? How did they want to engage with us? And then how can we architect messaging and a marketing motion and a selling motion um, to go influence all of those stakeholder personas? So what is the process that you use to actually land on the sales plays and how were you able to validate and confirm that you actually had nailed it once you pulled them together? No, it's a great question. And, you know, on the one hand, there's some analysis. And on the other hand, like, let's be honest, it was a lot of evenings in the office with like boxes of pizza and bottles of wine, you know, with a with a working team across sales and marketing and really studying this. So we would, you know, you dissect a few um, recent wins, maybe a few recent losses to understand kind of what process we went through. And then we, you know, first and foremost, I think one of the most anchoring things is who are the buyer personas? Don't identify too many. We named four. We said, these are the four personas that matter. And then we wanted to get clarity on like, what do they care about? How do they want to engage with us? And what's our value proposition to them? The value proposition has to hang together across all of those different personas, but they each speak a different language. Developer might be interested in ease of use, ease of acquisition, ease of adoption, quick time to value versus a CTO might be more interested in total cost of ownership, um, ability to operate and scale this tool across the entire enterprise, um, security and that sort of thing. So you have to get real clarity on that. And then from there, build those repeatable sales and marketing plays that you can jointly take to market. The big transformation that was happening at New Relic and happens at every you know, growth tech company at some stage is in the early days, the market is coming to you. There's a lot of inbound. And if you're a developer led, you know, and you have a self-service or freemium or open source offering, um, you get that great top of funnel, that great inbound. At some point, as you cross the chasm from those early adopters into the early majority market, you have to be creating demand. And in order to create demand, you need a marketing team and a selling team. Um, that has the capability to build those programmatic go-to-market uh, plays together so that you can go out and find and create demand. It's a really important transition. Once you've landed on the right plays, how do you actually operationalize those and ensure that everyone in the organization is putting them to work? I like to think about treating pipeline generation and pipeline management with as much rigor 
is we treat the forecast management process. So all of us have, you know, our weekly forecast cadence with our teams where we're reviewing the numbers, reviewing the deals, et cetera. Well, I like to have a separate cadence that is all about generating pipeline where you hold all of the different sources of um, pipeline generation, marketing, maybe your alliances and channels team and your selling teams accountable to pipeline targets. And you meet weekly to review progress against those targets. And then behind that is a bottoms up programs-based plan that each of those teams is taking to market to generate pipeline. And I think planning for how you're going to generate pipeline is equally as important as planning how much headcount and capacity you're going to put into different market segments. Many companies don't do that, don't build that muscle early enough, that muscle of how are we going to go generate pipeline? What are the programs? But the sooner you can do that as you're crossing that chasm into that that next level of scale for your company, you'll be much better equipped to create the demand that you need to feed all of the capacity that you're going to want to add to the sales force. The other thing that I think is so essential when you're building out your sales organization for scale is the role of sales enablement. And I see too many teams have a small enablement team that's maybe buried somewhere in a sales operations function, and it's not viewed as the strategic function that it really is. If you think about the need to enable the sales force on these prescriptive sales plays and give people the recipe that they need to be successful, then sales enablement is one of the most strategic levers that you have in the organization. And so I think investing significantly in sales enablement, making sure you have skill sets on that team that range from great program management to ideally some folks who have lived in a selling role as a pre-sales or or quota-carrying AE or post-sales role and so have have played that customer facing role that can help so much always partnering closely with with product marketing um, but I think that sales enablement is something I recommend investing in early because it's a strategic lever what are the different components of sales enablement that really make a difference in terms of impacting the organization I think it's, you know, it's everything from prescribing the sales plays, outlining the selling motion, what are the stages of the selling motion and what has to happen to advance from stage to stage? What are the systems and tools that you want your team using and making sure that everyone's trained up on that? And another element that I think is really important is the enablement for your managers and your leaders. How do you want them to inspect and coach what's going on in your sales organization. That's a really important element of enablement. A lot of the managers have been salespeople and then they've just been promoted into a management role. They haven't been given a lot of guidance or direction though about what it means to be a manager. And as a result of that, oftentimes they can really struggle to make that transition. So I love the idea of tapping into your sales enablement team in order to help them make that step. Absolutely. And that frontline manager role, that is a make or break role. It's such a hard job. And as you say, so many people are transitioning into their first leadership job when they take on that role. And getting that right, having really effective frontline sales leaders can make or break an organization. So I think it's worth investing in enablement specifically for the community of people in that function. I've heard you use the word coach a lot. Do you draw a distinction between coaching and simply managing? Yes, 
Absolutely. I think managing is a little bit of inspection and a little bit of holding people accountable. And a great man once said, um, inspection without coaching is just micromanagement. But I think that coaching is really about giving people, it's knowledge transfer and it's giving people the skills, it's giving people new ideas, and uh, it's really it being invested in that person's success. All right. Anything else that comes to mind as you think about your playbook for building a successful sales organization? You know, one other thing that I think is so important as you think about building the sales organization is uh, your segment strategy and your coverage strategy for each of those segments. By segments, I mean maybe SMB or commercial segment versus the enterprise um, or a strategic account segment and really having clarity on, you know, not over segmenting, but where do those different um, market cohorts behave differently enough that you can draw a bright line between them, resource them with maybe a different level of sales rep, a different set of uh, resources lined up to that sales rep, like an SE or an SDR, and then arm them with different plays and, of course, um, expect different uh, you know, production out of those different types of territories and segments. So you've worked at the highest levels of B2B selling. There's a debate. It's ongoing. One camp says you can't put too many constraints on a B2B seller in terms of the numbers they should hit, the metrics. You can't be too prescriptive. It's an art. Every deal is different. The other camp says, actually, no, there are some specific metrics that you can hold a B2B seller accountable to. Where do you fall on that spectrum and how have you actually implemented that philosophy day to day? I believe in being much more metrics driven and much more scientific, much more prescriptive with the sales plays. There's always room for great sellers and the more um, tenured sellers on your team to iterate on that. But the more prescriptive you can be, it means that you're better able to recruit more sellers to your team of different skill sets. You know, for example, a lot of our sellers in the commercial market, it may be their first or second quota carrying sales job that they've had. So we have to be great at teaching them a prescriptive sales play. And then as you scale up to your, say, strategic account segment, where you have sellers who have many more years of experience under their belt, they still want to know what is the sales play that's worked? How have my peers, if I'm, I'm a financial services rep in London, how have my financial services rep peers in New York cracked the code, what's working for them? They still want to see that bottled up and have it handed off to them, but they also have the capability to iterate on it a little bit based on their own experience. So I always start with the, as prescriptive of emotion as you can. Well, you had a great run there and I think arguably had one of the greatest successes in bridging that bottoms up motion that you described with the enterprise sale. You're now at Confluent where I know that you're capitalizing on that playbook, but there's a new dimension now that's been injected into the equation, which is you're working with open source technology. Tell me a little bit about how you've had to change your playbook up to encompass the open source nature of what Confluent does. Yeah, it's been a, um, a great new dimension to contemplate and to get experience with. And um, the amazing thing about open source is you you see all of this usage. You see how that open source product is being um, used in the market. And, um, and that ultimately is your top of funnel. And then the, the, the challenge is how you convert that. How do you add enough value, offer enough value from 
in our case, Confluent, um, add enough value to open source Apache Kafka such that the customers want to spend money with us versus use the open source version. And it's a it's a delicate dance because you you know you want to make sure that you maintain the integrity of the open source. You want to serve developers with open source. And so the way we think about it is well. The developer can be, you know, in isolation can be served by the open source version. When we start to talk about enterprise projects or certainly scaling Kafka as an event streaming architecture across a company, that's where Confluent comes in because we, the IP that we offer brings the scalability, the security, the manageability, the operability, et cetera, as well as some additional capabilities. So it's been, it's been an exciting journey. As you sit around the leadership table with, with the head of products, uh, with the CEO, what kinds of strategic conversations do you have related to how you're going to strike that balance between what is offered through the open source community and what you're going to charge your customers for? Yeah, it all starts with, I mean, I, we use this phrase a lot, customer back. If you really start with the customer, what does the customer find valuable enough to pay for? And that's where studying the customer journeys and the use cases gives us a lot of insight in terms of where we can add incremental value in a paid offering. And so again, it goes back to, you know, as customers want to, many companies have chosen um, Kafka is an architecture for a new application offering. When they look at making event streaming more of a centralized architecture for the enterprise and that central nervous system, that data platform for the enterprise, they want to work with a partner who can assure them of security and scalability um, and manageability and all those things. So that's really where we're focused. Well, let me shift gears for a minute. You have come from being an SDR to leading sales teams you're now the president of field operations at Confluence, so you've been able to successfully make the move and become one of the, the senior executives at a company. What advice do you have for heads of sales or sales leaders that are looking to make that transition and move into the C-suite? I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is, you know, first, you, you have to be a great team member and you have to partner with the other leaders around the table. You have to partner with the other leaders in the C-suite. And that you, for example, said you asked earlier, you know, when I'm talking with the head of product, how do we approach, you know, staying aligned and making sure our offering hits the mark, like really developing deep partnerships with a head of product or a head of marketing, if they're in that peer group or the CFO with whom you're building the growth plan for the company building those partnerships is just essential. And it's a delicate balance of bringing feedback from the field and from customers about where the company needs to improve or redirect or make some changes, um, but doing it in a collaborative way so that it's it's evident to all that you're on the same team. And so I think that's really number one is learning to collaborate with those different functions. The other thing I would say is, you know, growing up in a sales leadership position, if you think about how we all spend our time week to week, it's in deals, it's looking at pipeline and forecast, it's talking about a sales process. When you shift into the C-suite or you shift into facing off to the board, you're, you're speaking a different language. All of a sudden, you're talking about capacity plans and productivity per head and ramp schedule. And in just all this, this different lingo that you may not have learned on your way up as a VP of sales. And so making that transition is really important. And there too, as we talked about earlier, that's probably a good opportunity for an aspiring sales VP or a sales VP aspiring to transition to a CRO or president position to get some coaching 
and find some resources who can educate her or him on what is that language that the board wants to speak about how the go-to-market organization is performing. I can't help but think that the experience that you had down in Argentina, learning to speak a different language has helped you in your career, because really what we're talking about are different audiences who are focused on different things and they use different words to describe those different things. The leaders that I admire most are those who can start with, who am I talking to? What do they care about? How do they talk about things? And they're able to move seamlessly in and out of different worlds and genuinely connect and create value for all the people that they're engaged with. Yeah, no, I think that's a great observation. I think about that. It's both speaking a different language and also it was, you know, living in Argentina in a different culture where people have a different worldview was very eye-opening for me. And so I do carry that with me when I'm working with different parts of the company, working with different customers. Every company we work with has a different culture. And so really um, trying to understand, okay, how are they thinking about things? How do they operate at their company? I think it's valuable experience. Well, I'd love to stay on this topic and, and maybe probe at a different, different side of it. You've had a lot of experience with uh, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. You've been an expat. You've been an executive. You're a woman. What is your perspective on, on diversity, inclusion, and belonging, and how has that evolved over the years? Yeah, it's a great question and a, pas- a topic I'm passionate about. And my perspective has evolved. I think, you know, when I reflect on my Oracle experience, I was, uh, you know, especially as I got into leadership, I was oftentimes the only woman in the room. I was often the youngest in the room. And sometimes I noticed it and sometimes I didn't. I think maybe at that stage in my career, that that moment in the industry, we just we weren't talking about diversity and inclusion as much. And at the time, I, I definitely believed that I was operating in a meritocracy. And so I always you know, was very focused on delivering performance. And I, I believe that that would um, advance me in my career. And I had a fabulous career at Oracle. I was um, really pleased with, you know, the advancement that I saw. As I reflect, though, on that term meritocracy, I think I've come to learn, I've come to believe that there is a lot of unconscious bias, a lot of systemic bias, and even in systems that we believe are meritocracies. And so I do think we all carry our unconscious biases with us. And so that's kind of, for me, that's been a really foundational thing is to come to terms with that and accept that and know that that, that unconscious bias is always present for all of us. And so how can we be aware of that and then check ourselves or surround ourselves with people who can help check us on those, those possible blind spots? Um, so that's a big one for me. I also think a lot about, you know, the difference between diversity and inclusion. Both are important, but they're very different things. And if we can talk about inclusion for a minute and why inclusion is so critical to building a high performance team, inclusion is about, as you said, that sense of belonging and people having a sense of how their work connects to the mission of the organization and having confidence that their voice matters and that their voice is heard. And and when we can do that, when we can create an inclusive environment where each member of your team genuinely feels that way, that's what unlocks that extra effort and um, people's willingness to do what it takes for the mission of the company, the mission of the team, that discretionary effort. And so that's what really connects to the most high performing organizations. And so I love thinking about uh, a culture of inclusion and its connection to a high performance team. And then when you layer in diversity, diversity represents potential. 
diverse worldviews, diverse backgrounds, that represents potential of different ways of thinking that can help you solve a problem, address challenges. And when you put diversity into an inclusive environment where all voices are valued and perspectives matter, that's where you get, that's where you really unlock powerful potential. So both diversity and inclusion are important. They're not the same thing. Um, and uh, But together, they're really powerful. You talk about creating an environment where where individuals can thrive, they can they can be themselves. Just as I've talked to you, I definitely recognize that you have an incredible tolerance for risk. You'll throw yourself into situations, not exactly sure how you're going to figure it out. You always figure it out, though. Most people do not have that kind of a tolerance for risk. So maybe let's start there. How do you create an environment where everyone feels included and comfortable when you're perhaps asking them to do things or stretch themselves in ways that, that isn't natural to them? Yeah. And I do think it's important to recognize that different people have very different levels of risk tolerance. And that's a great thing. You want that kind of diversity in the organization because people will kind of um, balance each other out. But I think it's for me, it comes down to creating a learning organization. And, And what does that mean? That's a term we can throw around a lot. It means that, you know, first it comes from this premise of particularly, again, in, in a high growth tech company like a Confluent or a New Relic, no one has ever done exactly what we're trying to do before. No one has gone to market with these products in this moment, with this team, um, in this environment. And so inherently, none of us have the answers. We all have experience we can draw from, but none of us have the answers. So we're all learning as we go. And the most important thing, the teams that win are the teams that learn the fastest, that take the learnings from the wins and the losses and metabolize them the fastest and and make those changes. And so I think if you can set that tone, that's a really important foundation that none of us have the answers. And then encouraging people to take risks, um, giving people stretch roles, giving them the resources and maybe some mentorship so that they have confidence, you know, at least enough confidence they can take on that stretch role. That's really important. And then making sure you have a culture where failure is never fatal. It's okay to make mistakes as long as people are giving it their best, communicating well, asking for help. Failure can't be fatal. And so I think those are some elements of um, an organization that will have a higher risk tolerance and ultimately be higher performing. On the teams that you build, what are some specific tactics that you use to create that kind of an environment that you've just described? Well, first off, it goes back to that um, coaching mindset and kind of my coaching experience. I think of my leadership team as a coaching staff. And when I think about, you know, what is a coach, there's a great John Wooden quote, you know, the famous UCLA basketball coach. He said, um, he said, a coach, Coach is someone who can deliver feedback without creating resentment or something along those lines. And so it's about how do you create a culture where you can give people feedback, constructive feedback, but, but while doing that, they know that you're in their corner and that you're cheering for them. And I think that uh, the best leaders, again, in high growth environments where you're learning all the time, have that ability to be a great coach. So that to me is, is one of the things is who you hire um, and do they have that coaching um, coaching mindset? The second thing is, can you um, create an operating environment where you're always running experiments? 
And so you're running some experiments on the side. Some will succeed, some will fail. And that's just part of doing business. That's part of going to market. So if you can have different experiments running where you celebrate the failures as much as the successes because you learn from the failures, then that I think sets a tone as well that not everything we're aspiring to do is going to work. And if you're on the team that ran that experiment that didn't work, wow, thank you, because you taught us something we needed to learn that's going to make us make us more effective the next time. So those are a couple strategies. I love the fact that you brought up John Wooden. He's one of my favorites. He shared a quote once, which has stuck with me. The quote is, to win takes talent, to repeat takes character. And uh, it's interesting, over the course of this conversation, I think that you've really shared some of the experiences that you've had that have helped you to build the character that has served you so well, but also how you've translated that personal character to the character and the organizations that you've created. And as a result of that, I think the results speak for themselves. But one success after another, also some failures and and some challenges and struggles. I think that's all part of life, though. So, Erica, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of who you are and what has allowed you to achieve the things that you've achieved to date in your career. I'm sure we'll see many more great things to come as well. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.